with your banjo and guitar. You sang for the workers. You sang against the war. You sang, there is a season, troubadour. What are we looking for? We're looking for the grave of Eliza Martin, who was one of the original strikers, was also on the union committee. Last October, Union Dues podcast host Simon Sapper took me on a labor history walk in London. Our November 5th episode covers our visit to the site of the factory where the 1888 Match Girl strike took place. Simon took us to several other nearby sites that illustrated the way workers lived and struggled in those days. Most of the actual places are now long gone. But one of them, the grave of Eliza Martin, one of the striking match girls, still exists, though, as you'll hear, it is not easy to find. On Labor History in 2 from January 27th, The year was 1908. That was the day the United States Supreme Court ruled that bans on yellow dog contracts were unconstitutional. January 27th is also the date, 10 years ago in 2014, that musician, poet, humanitarian, and activist Pete Seeger died. The R.J. Phillips Band's Joe DiFilippo sent us a musical tribute, and I can think of no better way to start the show. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is Labor History Today. Match Girl's strike of 1888 was an industrial action by the women and teenage girls working at the Bryant and May Match Factory in Bow, an area of East London. Following the strike's success, the Union of Women Matchmakers was formed later in 1888. It was the largest union of women and girls in the country and inspired a wave of collective organizing among industrial workers. Last October, 
Union Dues podcast host Simon Sapper took me and my wife Lisa on a labor history walk in London. The November 5th episode of the show covers our visit to the site of the factory where the strike took place. Simon then took us to what at first looked like an overgrown park. Where are we and what are we looking for? We are, we are in Tower Hamlets Cemetery Park. Um, and it, it used to be a working cemetery from about 18, um, 1860 or so to uh, 1966. And then it, they stopped burying people here and turned it into a park. And we're looking for the grave of Eliza Martin who was one of the original strikers, was also on the union committee, and who is the subject of another campaign by the Match Girls Memorial Trust to have her grave restored and buried properly. Now, um, <laughs> so this is just to sort of describe, I mean, these, first of all, these are some of the largest tombstones I've ever seen. They're, they're, they're as big as a, as a single bed. I mean, these, yeah, are, these yeah, are, they are very large tombstones. Uh, most of them are pretty unreadable yeah so they're, they're, they're weathered beyond recognition all the all the writing as uh, all the inscription has been has been has been stripped away by by the weather but this is very the, the style of tombstones is is very um is very indicative of, of activity during the mid 19th century mid to late 19th century a few years I, I, either side of that and this cemetery is actually one of the so-called great seven cemeteries of london I did not even know there was such a thing. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and all of them, <laughs> all of them are busy. But this is, I mean, this is an absolute jumble of tombstones. Every direction in which you look, they're kind of falling over each other and, 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 and into the ground. And, and it's not surprising they had to stop burying people here. Eliza is buried here. You know that how, so first of all, and then, but you don't know exactly where. I have a plot number ah. and a map. Okay. All right. All right. So we're well on the way there. Let's hope so. Let's let's head this he's way. Looking around, <laughs> he's looking around a little bit, looking a little <laughs> bit lost, folks. <laughs> Not a little bit lost. I have the navigation all planned. I can tell you, and it's just gone out the Good. window. Because all right. Well, we shall follow you. <laughs> Are we getting close? Your guess is as good as mine. Uh, I have a clue, so we're in trouble. Let me just have a try, try and look on the map and see if I can... Um, going, for the, going for the GPS. Hang on a minute, there's a fork in the road. Yes, there is, right. And so we go to the... I was going to ask which plot number we're looking for, but I don't know what difference that would make because I see no... There are no numbers. There are no numbers. Oh look, he's got photos. Yeah, All right. This is what this is what the match girls. That's and that's what we're looking for. Oh okay, we've got a visual. Okay. All right, that's helpful. Um, oh, and, oh, actually, okay. We can see Elizabeth. The best was her married name. And then there's a map. There must be. All right, we have we have more than I thought. Map. There we go. Right. So she's in. Plot 22 on this path. So I think that I think that this junction, unless we've just walked round the round glade, mm. I feared this would happen. I do apologise. No, no, no. That's all right. This is quite amazing <laughs> we, here. We we normally get lost, so this is very familiar territory for us. Well, normally we walk miles out of our way, so we're fine. Uh, do we know where we are? No. Well, actually, hang on a minute. I'll get the sign. If we get to... Did we come in this way? No, we came in this way. That's what I thought. We came in from there. Yeah. Okay. And we, and we came in 
we came we in came there. Yeah, we so <coughs> we walked back. And which which in which car are we looking for? Twenty two. Twenty two. With reference twenty two. Where do we think? Where do we think we are? <laughs> it's very funny. I have this map, which. Right, so there's the obelisk that I think you can see in the picture. There it is. We've got it. Got it. And she's right. It has changed, sweetie. It has. Shut dude. Hey. Nice one. Wow. Right, so Eliza uh, Eliza Martin fell asleep 21st December 1924, age 56. Is that right? That looks looks like 56 to me. Fell asleep. Euphemism. It's a Br euphemism. British <laughs> euphemism for dying. They just bury people when they fall asleep around here. <laughs> you got to be careful. <laughs> all right. So just. Uh, <coughs> After all of that, might as well just go ahead and remind us of <laughs> who we finally found. We, we found uh, Eliza Best, nay Eliza Martin, um, who was one of the leaders of the strike in 1888. Uh, she was on the strike committee, and then when the union was recognized, she was on the, on the union committee. But we don't know that much about her, which is frustrating in, in a way for someone who clearly played a leading role. The important thing is that now she's been found, as it were, or her last resting place has been found, is to make sure the grave is properly maintained. Uh, it's in quite a sad state uh, of disrepair, as, as many of the graves in this place are, uh, and that there's a proper memorial and explanation of her contribution uh, alongside it. So it really does feel... It, it feels like I'm, I've met someone I've known of... Um, it's a weird feeling, actually, looking looking at Eliza's grave. Well, I wanted you to talk a little bit more about that because looking at this, th there's nothing, of course, here about the strike. No, not at nothing all. about her role. Nope. Um, and it, it it's not well maintained, but of course that's the way it was. Well, most of the things here, but I mean, a lot of of history in general, certainly labor history does not have monuments we've talked about this doesn't have monuments doesn't have plaques doesn't have statues it lives in collective memory yes but i think what what you're talking about maybe has to do with when you do have something physical we have here buried where we're standing is somebody who is important in labor history indeed so i think that's maybe what you're talking about i think so i think so and i, I think you're absolutely right about the the kind of dynamics of, of, of that um because this is the this is as close as we can get to a community a, a collective memory or collective sense of sense of purpose mm. and of course you know you, you know, the, the rationalists will say well it's just a grave and that's just stuff um but but actually there is and i think it's partly because this place is so atmospheric uh, as I think we, we all recognise, just walking through it uh, to get to get to this point, but there is a there's almost an aura about it. I'm, I'm sounding terribly sentimental. Here. <laughs> this is, it's not me you're at a, all. You're in a cemetery. It's allowed. <laughs> Talk a little bit about how uh, you you didn't find this. There's a, a group that found this, and talk a little bit about that because you were, you had a photo and you had a, a map. Even so, obviously, <laughs> it, hard took to find. Yes. it took us a while. It took us a while. Well, the Match Girls Memorial Trust. 
is is actually in reality the closest thing you get to a collective memory uh, because there are descendants of the match girls who are very active and involved in that and have done a great job about about telling the story to an ever widening audience and about campaigning for proper recognition for the contribution the, the match girls made so it was they who who tracked down eliza to to, to her final re resting Place. and it's they who are currently talking to the people who are responsible for maintaining and, and managing this space now it's no longer a working cemetery uh, to to make sure that the grave is restored and repaired and uh, and a proper acknowledgement made of of her contribution for those who will hopefully be able to find it with a lot less <laughs> deviation than we've endured today well i'm glad we persisted and and and, and I will say for my part, you know, that these physical manifestations for us in labor history are so rare. Mm. I think that that is mm. why so often to be able, you know, if you stand in front of a modern building, you say, well, this is what used to be here. You can maybe even show pictures sometimes or you can paint a picture. And that's how we continue this this oral tradition. Uh, but when you have, even with the factory that you took us to at the beginning, okay, here, these are the actual factory walls. Yeah. Um, you know, you do wish that th there was something left of the interior where you could show that, but at least there's an actual factory wall that existed 100 and some years ago. To be able to know that here lies this person who, you know, led this strike, it, it does feel like more of a connection. I think so. I think so. I'm glad it's not just me. Simon Sapper, host of the Union Days and Union Dues podcast. We've got links to both in the show notes, where you'll also find a photo of Eliza Martin's grave. Next, Simon takes us to the site of the Match Tax Fountain right after this. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1908. That was the day the United States Supreme Court ruled that bans on yellow dog contracts were unconstitutional in the case of Adair versus United States. The case served to nullify the Erdman Act of 1898, which banned such contracts for those who worked on moving trains in the railroad industry. The Erdman Act had been a response to the 1894 Pullman strike. At the time, the federal government smashed workers striking against deep wage cuts and for union recognition with Eugene V. Debs' American Railway Union. Seeking to prevent any disruptions along the railroads, the Erdman Act banned any contracts that required workers to renounce unions in order to gain employment, recognize the right of union organizations as a means of collective bargaining, and established mechanisms for the arbitration of grievances. In 1906, William Adair, a supervisor with the Louisville and Nashville Railroad, fired a member of the Order of Locomotive Firemen for his membership. Adair was indicted under the Erdman Act, found guilty, and fined. He then appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court and won. The Supreme Court ruled that the Erdman Act violated the Due Process Clause of the Fifth Amendment and served to supersede the Commerce Clause in the Constitution. The court argued that the railroad's employment decisions were a protected right so long as they did not injure the public interest. Congress could not criminalize the firing of an employee because of union membership. Dissenting opinions centered on the potential for renewed labor conflict. Workers would have to wait almost 25 years for yellow dog contracts to be banned in all industries with the passage of the 1932 Norris LaGuardia Act. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com. 
we're actually going the wrong we're way. We're going right, yeah, 163, so we should be going that way. There's, okay. Except there's nothing to see there. That's, a, that's the whole thing. At 193 Bow Road was a hostel that was, that was run by Annie Besant and a couple of other social reformers specifically to provide accommodation uh, for the girls and women who worked at Bryant and Mays. Annie Besant was a social activist who published an article about the horrific working conditions at the Bryant and May Match Factory. The article angered Bryant and May management, who tried to get their workforce to sign a paper contradicting it, but the workers refused to do so. Management then fired a worker, which set off the strike. And this is just a few blocks from the factory. This is yeah. This is a very short distance from the from the factory, less than a quarter of a mile. So at the time, this would have been a very working class neighborhood. Absolutely, it would it would have been a, a neighborhood that's had wave upon wave of uh, of migrants coming and settling. We're very close to the London docks here, uh, so that would be an a, a, an entrepot for all sorts of people, Huguenots, the French, the Irish, uh, the Windrush generation, of course, as well. And how would you describe the neighborhood now? Very multicultural. Um, people, who, people who decry multiculturalism, such as our leading politicians at the moment, need to come and, and look, at this, look at this environment. You have all sorts of everyone here. Um, and generally, it's a peaceable existence, albeit it's a poor area as well. It's an inner city area. So this is it, 193 Bow Road. It was Annie Besant who ran a hostel right where we're stood now, in front of, in front of more gates that, that are locked and barred. And there's, no, there's no, nothing to suggest that the structure that she was involved with is still here, except perhaps if we look up. That might just pass muster as a building from the 1880s. But it demonstrates that Annie was quite an extraordinary character in terms of having a set of beliefs and being really committed to them in a practical sense as well as a philosophical, philosophical sense. And here we are. Ah. Near this spot stood the testimonial fountain erected by public subscription in 1872 to commemorate the part played by Bryant and May and their work people in securing the abandonment of the proposed match tax. And it was quite a fountain, very ornate. Um, about 12 feet high, um, kind of two tiers of, of jets of water that would come out, and it stood in front of what at the time was a very significant railway station, uh, which has, uh, and both were damaged by bombs in the Second World War, and then caught fire as well, and were finally removed in the mid-1950s. The fountain itself was demolished in 1953. Um, but the importance of this, or the relevance of this, I, I, I think, is perhaps we forget how much this sector was worth. The proposed match tax, which was a tax on, on matches, uh, which the workforce felt would depress their wages still further, which is why they campaigned against it, um, but it would have yielded the government of the day about $78 million. It, in those dollars, or these do today's? No, today's dollars. In today's dollars, okay. Who proposed it was the tax? Pro it was proposed by the then Chancellor, uh, who was obviously looking for ways to improve the government's finan financial position and just thought, this is easy, this is great, no one will object, except, of course, they did. And, uh, and eventually the plans for the tax were, were abandoned. And this was 
I'm trying to get my dates right. So this would have been after the strike? No, before. Before eight, the strike. Eight, eight, early 1870s. Early 1870s. Happened. So kind of a good 15, nearer 20 years before before the strike. And so in this case, the is it true that the workers were on board with, with, the, uh, with the owners on this? Or was it sort of a, one of those cases of them being... <laughs> I, I think I think they probably were on were on, on board, but I think they were also told that they were on board. Got it. So the the mash tax was defeated. It never it was never implemented. It was withdrawn, and the, and the chancellor was somewhat ridiculed ultimately for coming up with a scheme that was not viable and not viable because of partly because of public opposition. So I'm getting this picture. You know, we started out at the factory. That's a few blocks from here. Then we went to this statue of the, the prime minister you know which they you know the, the the same company had taxed their workers for just a few blocks away now we're a few blocks over here where they put up a fountain it, this seems like uh bryant may was was quite the uh mover and shaker in this Abs- community absolutely well it's not quite a company town kind of scenario but he certainly had a large footprint a large and heavy heavy footprint as you've just described there's lots of things here that that all link back to the factory and Bryant and May and the people who made Bryant and May's money the, the match girls now these 1400 uh, women and girls they would have lived pretty much right around here they, they would in, they, they would indeed we'll, we'll travel uh, we'll travel roughly about half a mile down the road into the center of London and we'll find the site of where uh, Sarah Chapman uh, lived uh, now entirely demolished. No, no sign, no, no indication that such a historically significant figure lived there. Uh, but you, that's the kind of the catchment area, as as it were. Uh, and it would be very high density, low level housing. Uh, and yeah, that's that's that degree of intensity would certainly be there. And of course, intermingled with that is the intensity of the dock workforce which we spoke about. And we're not the, far from the docks. We're not, although you wouldn't know it uh, from the rumble of traffic. We're less than half a mile from the docks and from the river. Yeah, and we, you know, this, knowing this from our walk, I mean, the dock, that, those docks, that was a huge dock area. I mean, they're mostly gone now. But yeah, they're, they're all gone now. Right. But it was huge. I mean, you think about Britain as an imperial power, and you think about the entry point into the country being primarily waterborne, you know, freight, freight shipping, of, of everything. I mean, we, uh, we're standing right next door to Poplar, what was Poplar Town Hall. Poplar was a, this part of London, uh, and and you can see on the mosaic that welcomes people into what was Poplar Town Hall: sugar, wine, fabric, coal, all sorts of stuff that 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 would be brought in through through the docks. It, they they were big, but they needed to be to handle a huge volume of traffic. And then I think people forget now because you can just jump on the tube and be across town in half an hour or so. But at the time, obviously, you didn't have the subway. I'm imagining that it was a much more local, is because London it really is made up of all of these little communities that then get absorbed, right? That, 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 that's right. It, yeah, it would be local. Although, having said that, it wouldn't be unusual for people to walk significant distances to get to, to, get to their workplace. Although, having said that, in this part of London in the 1870s, 1880s, you didn't need to if you were doing that sort of low-grade, low-pay, exploitative work because there were plenty of places for you to, for you to be engaged by. 
um, if that's if, if, if that's the position you were in. So it would be very likely that you would you know, work at the factory, live nearby, shop nearby. That that Absolutely. would be your whole world. Absolutely. Absolutely. Which which kind of made what the match girls did even all the more remarkable because the day after they the day after they said right we're going on strike 5th of July 18, 1888 a group of 200 of them walked up the road towards Whitechapel into town to see Annie Besant at at her offices where she she published the the, the link ma magazine to seek her support and she wasn't particularly keen on the idea of of a strike but she recognized the right and the in, uh, the kind of imperative for the, the women and girls to organise themselves and discussed with the, the strikers the idea and the concept and the operation of a strike committee and it was, it was at that point that the strike committee was formed so they, <laughs> they struck before they had a strike committee well yeah, yeah they had a kind of de facto strike committee but, but the idea of, of how you would organise a strike committee and, and kind of use that to run the strike came from that, di that, that discussion uh, and then a few, day, a few days later they held a huge meeting uh, uh, and again, we'll go to the side of where that meeting, meeting w w was, was held to set up a strike register so the people who were, on, who were on strike could sign the register, be recognized as being on strike, and actually, if there was any strike pay to be had, which there was from public, again, from public subscription, um, they would be the ones to whom it would be distributed. 700 people signed the strike register on the first day. So, you know, it was clearly a, a, a popular idea, a necessary idea. But that idea of localism that we were talking about yes that was generally the, the experience and, and the, the pattern of existence which means when Sarah Chapman and her, her colleagues went up to Whitechapel to see Annie Besant, when they went with Annie to the House of Commons to, lo to, lobby, to lobby MPs, it was even more significant than, than, than it seems and it seemed pretty significant I have to say at the time because, and, the, and Sarah went on to be the, the President of the Union of match uh, of match making women she represented the union at the TUC when they had a congress in Liverpool in 18, 1890 you know you know she spread her wings that's for, for sure wonderful thank you you're, you're very welcome which side are you on boys which side are you on which side are you on boys which side are you on and that is it for this week's edition of labor history today you can subscribe to lht on your favorite podcast app even better if you like what you hear and we sure hope you do like it in your podcast app, pass it along, and leave a review. That really helps folks to find the show. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. That's a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Very special thanks this week to Simon Sapper, host of the Union Days and Union Dues podcasts, for taking the time to show us some of London's rich labor history. You'll find links to his shows, which are both, no surprise, terrific and well worth subscribing to. Our music today was Troubadour by the R.J. Phillips Band in tribute to Pete Seeger, who died 10 years ago on January 27th. 2014. That's Pete himself now, singing, of course, Which Side Are You On? 
Labor History Today is produced by the Labor Heritage Foundation and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. You can keep up with all the latest labor arts news. Subscribe to the Labor Heritage Foundation's weekly newsletter at laborheritage.org. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening. Keep making history and see you next time.